Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. In 2020, the U.S. had the highest turnout election in over 100 years, but a high turnout election for the United States still only puts us probably in the middle of the pack among comparable advanced democracies. And more typical U.S. election puts us at the bottom of the list. Now, no country has 100% voter turnout, but there are some countries that get in the 90% range. And our guests today that think that we should aim for that 100% score, and that's E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport. Uh, E.J., you, you may know, is a Washington Post columnist, fellow at the Brookings Institute, professor at Georgetown, visiting professor at Harvard. Miles is also at Harvard. He is the Senior Practice Fellow in American Democracy at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Harvard Kennedy School. He has also been the president of both Demos and Common Cause and has been in the Connecticut State Legislature and served as Secretary of State. And they are also two of the nicest, kindest, and most optimistically visionary thinkers who I have known over the years. So it's so great, EJ and Miles, to be having this conversation to discuss your new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Welcome. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for those kind words. And we feel the same way about you. Uh, so <laughs> we are grateful to be here. Absolutely. Delighted to be here. So I want to start this conversation at kind of a high level, uh, not necessarily talking about voter participation rates, but more thinking about how should we think of an ideal democracy in the 21st century? How should we think about the quality that we want in a democracy? I'm curious how you see that, EJ. I'm really glad you're starting there because obviously the book is aimed at advancing a very specific proposal which is that the U.S. adopt a system akin to Australia's of requiring everyone to vote as we require everyone to serve on juries. And we can get into the details of how we propose to do that and why we think that asserting a civic and legal duty to vote is the best way to defend it as a right. But your question goes to why one of the reasons why we want this idea in the public debate, why we want 100% democracy in the public debate. Uh, because what's really going on in our struggle is, in our country, is a struggle between those who really believe that democracy means democracy, which means that every citizen of the country um, has a right to a voice and a vote in our political system, and that a democracy is falling short of its promise and its obligation if it excludes people. There are clearly others in our system who are trying to make it harder for people to participate. And we think underlying that is a belief that, you know, it would actually be better to have a more restricted democracy. They won't say that explicitly, but we think that putting 100% on the democracy on the table forces that debate. And the question is, if you are make, creating all these new obstacles to voting, who are you trying to exclude? Why are you trying to exclude them? And the, you know, the argument of our book is democracy means democracy, which means everybody's in. Uh, I'll just close with some people are fans, as I am, of Harry Bosch, Michael 
Connolly's great detective, the mystery writer, Michael Connolly. And Harry Bosch's slogan as a cop was, everybody counts or nobody counts. And the theory of our book is everybody should count. I like it. Um, so I'm going to ask some more questions because that's what we do on this podcast. And one of the things that has happened over the last 60 years or so in American politics is that it's actually gotten easier to vote in a lot of places, notwithstanding some of the recent backsliding. Uh, but turnout has basically remained flat. So there's a, a sort of broad political science literature on what I guess you would call, people do call, convenience voting, which early voting, voting by mail, other ways that go beyond just limited voting days. And, you know, the evidence suggests that even as it's become easier to vote in a lot of places and easier to register, voting rates haven't really increased. So when you look at that, what do you see as some of the reasons why you think people are not voting even as it's becoming easier to vote? Is it just Americans are lazy and uninterested? Or do you think there's something more fundamental in our democracy that's kept voting rates pretty flat for a very long time in this country? Right. Well, you know, I have been, I did a little bit of a calculation going back to when I was a state legislator in Connecticut and the chair of the elections committee. And I have been working on voting issues and expanding the vote and expanding procedures for voting for just about 40 years. In addition, I've worked on other democracy issues, campaign finance reform, the flaws in our political parties, Lee, which you have been incredibly eloquent in describing and discussing, you know, and uh, electoral college reform, et cetera. But a lot of the energy has been on, you know, uh, what I would call a suite of reforms, all of which are designed to make it easier to vote or less onerous to vote. I'm not sure I would describe it as convenience voting quite. And that suite has consisted of same-day voter registration, which, by the way, I do think has been shown to make a difference of a few points, you know, kind of regardless of uh, other, other variables in those places, which is now about 22 or 23 states that have same-day registration. But I've worked on res restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, early voting, expanded mail-in voting, et cetera. And you're right. We have not moved the needle very far. I mean, I do believe in it. I do think that the needle has moved. I think in an ironic way, there's evidence of that in just how hard some states and some political factions are fighting to roll all those things back. But, you know, I started to think a few years ago about what might really, really move the needle on this. And frankly, I actually read a piece that my fabulous co-author E.J. Dion had written along with Bill Galson for the Brookings Institution, and they wrote it back in 2015, making the case for a kind of mandatory participation schema such as they have in Australia and have had, as we'll point out, in the, as we point out in the book, for almost 100 years. So my reaction on reading that and seeing that they immediately went from 60% turnout, which is about what we get on a good day, to 90% and have stayed there for pretty much all through the 100 years, that says, wow, that really does move the needle. It really does make a difference. And so I got really interested in this. I was fortunate enough to um, hook up with uh, with EJ. And uh, we did the first, we did a working group. That was the Brookings Institution and the Ash Center that turned into the book. And now we're going to try to move the idea. So I guess the last very quick point I'll make is that there are many, many issues and many problems facing our democracy from campaign finance reform to the electoral college to 
the way in which uh, governmental responsiveness is skewed. So it's, there's no simple, easy solution. But on the lane of participation, universal voting, as we're describing it, I think has a chance to dramatically move the needle. And I think that's really worth trying. Can I jump in on that? Because I, I want to reflect first on something Miles taught me in our work together, which is it's very important. We, we focused a lot and correctly so on voter suppression efforts in many states. We haven't focused enough on the victories that we who want to expand access to the franchise have had over the years. And our ability to win on that was really substantially increased by the pandemic. Um, and one of the things we both like to put on the table uh, is that while it's clear that efforts to suppress or make voting harder uh, are happening almost entirely in Republican states, there were a lot of Republican election officials, um, even some state legislatures who, because of the pandemic, tried to expand access. And so if you look at we have a little chart in our book. Election day registration has gone from six states in 2000 to 21 in 2020. Early in-person voting from 22 states to 43. No excuse absentee voting from 22 to 34. And those changes have made a real difference that the turnout in the pandemic election was extraordinary. Depending on how you calculate the denominator, you can argue that it was the highest turnout in a presidential election we've ever had. So I don't think we should underestimate the desire that people have to vote if we allow them to do it conveniently. But we need to look at some of the holes in our electorate. And two that I really focus on and that we mentioned in the book are one, young people. Our system is very unfriendly uh, to young people. Young people move around a lot more uh, than older people do. Our registration laws make it very difficult for them. If you sort of key in on an election two or three weeks before, which a lot of voters do, you may discover in your state it's too late to register. So uh, if you look at turnout in 2020, people 65 and older, according to the census, 74.5% of them voted. 18 to 29s, and they turned out big compared to the past, were 54.1. Uh, similarly, by class, where uh, the difficulty people have accessing um, polling places and the like, if you use uh, education as a rough, though imperfect, uh, indicator of class, it's really astonishing. Basically, if you have a bachelor's degree or more, about 80% turnout, uh, less than a high school diploma, about 40% turnout. And so we think that our system needs to be a lot more responsive to those two groups of people to make it easier for them to vote. Final quick point, we have a lot of elections in America. And as you know, Lee, I think if you calculate, if you ask the question, have you voted once in some election in the last four years, our turnout is a little bit better than it looks if you just look at whatever the last election is. Well, I mean, I, I love the bold visionary, the bold ambition system. And I mean, look, I, I absolutely agree it should be easy to vote. The idea that we don't have same day registration or we don't have automatic voter registration puts us as I think a tremendous outlier. I mean, in, mo in a lot of countries, you're just automatically registered. Uh, and you don't have to go through all this rigmarole and re-register when you move. I mean, it, it's kind of insane. Um, you know, at the same time, there are a, a lot of people who are non-voters just like look at the elections and they say, you know, I'm voting for uh, gerontocracy A or gerontocracy B. 
And there's a lot of poor people who look at the elections and say, you know what? Like, I like Democrats and things don't get better for me. Democrats lose. Things are still crappy for me. So, like, what's the point of voting? And besides, I live in this uncompetitive district where nobody's bothering to even campaign for my vote because Democrats are going to win 80 percent to 20 percent and Republicans are going to win 70 percent to 30 percent. So, like, you know, what, what does it matter if I vote or not? I mean, I think there's a lot of, to me, you know, there's a lot of rational non-voting in, in the American electorate. People who feel like their vote doesn't matter because, you know, in a lot of places and given people's concerns, voting doesn't seem to matter. Now, maybe I think you would probably say that, well, if everybody voted, then it would matter. Is that... <laughs> well, no, I mean, a couple of things, and then I want Miles to pick up if he could. One is, I hear some of your reforms lurking behind your question, and there are a lot of them <laughs> we support as well. And one of the point Miles and I, points Miles and I make all the time is we are not magic elixir salespeople of the late 19th century. This will cure all that ails you. We have a whole yeah. chapter at the end of the book saying there are a lot of other things we need to uh fix, you know, we're both sympathetic to the single transferable vote, or as they call it in Australia, I kind of like their title for it, preferential voting, uh, yeah. and, you know, bigger multi-member, uh, more multi-member districts, are a lot of things that could solve some of those problems. However, we make the point that, you know, if you look at American elections, they are like a fancy dinner party, uh, where you have an A-list, a B-list, and a C-list. The A-list are the likely voters, they get all the attention from the campaigns, the consultants, the mail, the online communication, a B list of registered voters who don't vote that much and they don't get a lot of attention and a C list of the unregistered. And we think that creates uh, a kind of vicious cycle. Uh, on the one hand, the A-listers get all the attention if they're on your side, but there's a lot of effort made to discourage the other side's A-listers by sending them all kinds of information about how truly awful, wretched, and dangerous their party's candidate is, so they shouldn't bother to vote. But B, at least those people are asked to vote. And there is something to the fact that when you are asked to vote, as to do anything, you are more likely to do it than when you're not, and the B and the Cs are ignored. Last quick point before I kick it over to Miles, because he cares a lot about this one too, is that you know, if you look at the last Australian election, a lot of Australians weren't wild about either party either in that last election. They had a lot of problems with both parties. Uh, but with their system and having created a culture around participation, they still had extraordinary turnout. So that I, I think there are structural ways in which you create a culture where people choose to protest not by not voting, but by voting in various ways. And, and in Australia, because they have preferential voting, you have a way to, not only is, does everyone cast their ballots, I got this one for miles, but everyone can cast their ballot in a way they intend to. You read the ballot the way they intended to. But Miles, pick that up because I know you've thought a lot about Ali's question too. I'll just add one kind of specific and then a, a general response lead to kind of the, the picture you drew. The specific is that right now, the nature of campaigns is the currency of the realm, so to speak, in campaigns is to turn out your own base and parenthetically, in the worser case scenarios, to depress the base of your opponents. 
again, we've heard the phrase a lot recently, kind of enraged to engage. And so, you know, and I've heard it from Democratic consultants. I'm guessing there are Republican consultants saying the same thing, which is this is not a persuasion election coming up in 2022. This is a turnout election. If we can, if we, the Democrats, can just get the same people out who voted in 2018, we'll win. And so we don't need to worry about persuasion. We just need to get out our vote. But there's something fundamentally flawed about that, which is that, you know, you're just talking to a, a portion of the electorate and a portion that agree with you. In universal voting, that the, the whole incentive system changes because everybody is going to vote. Everybody is listening. And you have to craft a message that will persuade a, major, a genuine majority of the 90 percent of people who are going to vote that they have to do it as opposed to just trying to get to, you know, 36 percent to get you further over the line. I'll make the general point is that, you know, what you're describing, I think, is a really unfortunate, vicious cycle that we are in in American democracy, um, you know, where the lack of participation generates government responsiveness to the people who vote all the time, as well as to the donors, as well as to the kind of party functionaries. That, in turn, makes people feel like, why, why bother? Why is it worth it? Uh, throw in gerrymandering as well as the big sort. And you have it. And so what's happening is that people are, they're not participating. They're not being res responded to in government. They don't see the point. And so they participate even less. And then the cycle repeats itself. What we're trying to do is break the cycle. And it's not, it's a hard cycle to break, by the way. We're not naive about it, uh, or maybe just a little naive about it. But my hope is that if you start with the breaking of the cycle, that is, everyone is going to participate from all classes, all races, all ages, all education levels, all income levels, then government will be more responsive. Uh, you know, there's a lot of studies that show that government is responsive to the top 10, 15, 20% of the population, partly because that's who votes. You know, then all of a sudden you start to say, well, wait a second, maybe government is responding to me. Maybe it does matter. So our hope is that we can start to create a virtuous cycle that will end us up with a less toxic, less polarized, and more participatory culture. And the truth is, they have done a fair amount of that in Australia. So it's worth looking at and not just sort of poo-pooing it as, uh, as pure naivete. Uh, it is a celebratory culture. People, it, it, they do it on a weekend. They have these very famous democracy sausages and vegan alternatives, of course. And, you know, so I think it's something to aspire to and something that we ought not to just give up on. There are many, many, many defensive battles that need to be fought and short-term battles. But I think what EJ and I want to do is put a kind of a North Star marker out there that says what we really, really want is for everybody to participate. And that will make a difference. So I agree that it should be that should be the goal. Now, here, here's my concern about that within a two-party system. So right now, you know, we have somewhere between 40 and 60% engaged, but most people in that voting system are reliable partisan voters. And then we have people who are sort of non-voters who are not really in either camp. Maybe they'd vote for one or the other, but to the extent that they would get engaged and start learning about the issue, they'd probably pick a team. So now you would have, I think, the same mobilization. I mean, you wouldn't have the mobilization problem, maybe, because you wouldn't and there'd be but and there'd be maybe some share of persuadable voters, but you would a lot of those persuadable voters would probably hate both sides. And then the elections would be even more about trying to make the other side to seem 
even more extreme and radical. And, you know, like, you know, maybe there'd be more meddling in the primaries. We're seeing Democrats supporting some of these, uh, these, you know, stop the steal crazy person people in some of the some of the these close swing states because Democrats think that that's the way that they can win the general election. See the same inability to compromise in Congress because you want to make the other party seem extreme so you can win over those like, you know, pox on both of their house, you know, throw the bums out, swing voters. So, like, I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm obviously worried about vicious cycles. You might even, you know, I wrote a book about the doom loop. Um, but, like, I, I just feel that within the two-party system, just maximizing turnout is just going to make this problem worse. You know, again, Australia, they have ranked choice voting, alternative vote, preferential vote, whatever we want to call it for their House. They have proportional ranked choice voting, STV, for their Senate. So, you know, it gives voters some choices. They can express some, you know, discontent. They can also vote for none of the above, which I know you guys recommend. Belgium, which is another country that has uh, the, the mandatory voting, they also have a proportional system with lots of choices. So, you know, I'm curious about how you see the relationship between universal voting and the party system. Yeah, what I'd like to do is give an answer on both sides of your question in a way, uh, because if you ask me the question, would our system that we propose or really any system work better with ranked choice voting? The answer is yes. And I think the last Australian election was a really interesting case of why ranked choice can work in ways that don't completely obliterate a two-party system, but give people meaningful alternatives that matter. Um, in very conservative districts that had voted for the conservative parties forever, a group of what they were called teal independents, because they combined the blue of the conservative party and the green of the environmental movement. They were pro-business, but strongly pro-environment and very critical of the right-wing drift of the conservative party, they took a bunch of seats away and it was the transferable vote, preference voting that made that happen. Similarly, um, green voters could press the labor party to be more environmental. They had backed away a little bit because they thought they had lost the last election because they were too green. So this is a wonderful thing. And that's why I am for, and Miles is as well, for you know, rent choice voting. However, we think even within our existing structure, um, if you look at who is likely to come into the electorate, if you got closer to 90% instead of 60% or 50% in, a, in the high turnout 2018 election, I fear that we're going to go well below that in 2022. Um, the people you get in tend to be less ideological. Is moderate is a word you could use, but really less ideological is probably the right way uh, to put it. And so they tend not to be responsive. And that's certainly the evidence of Australia. We quote um, Kim Beasley, the former leader of the Labour Party, who um, you know, has been involved in campaign since he was a kid because his dad was in politics. And he said, you know, you, under, you know, the voters who probably came into the system because they're required to vote. But A, they take their choice seriously. And as Kim put it, these voters would have no time for this QAnon nonsense, as he put it. So that I think we would create an electorate that would push against polarization to some degree. And that is the effect it seems to have had in Australia. Miles? 
I would just add that the, you know, that there are other reforms, uh, Lee, that obviously you're well aware of that I think would sync well with the universal voting. I mean, there, you know, there's about to be, it looks like there's about to be a lawsuit in New Jersey to create a strong a fusion voting system, which we actually have in Connecticut and in New York. And so it is possible to be endorsed by two parties. And so I think that's a, you know, that gives voters more choices. It gets rid of a little bit, at least weakens the duopoly aspect of the, of how elections are run. So, you know, I think the ending gerrymandering and redistricting would go a, lot, a long way towards making people feel like they their vote matters. And of course, getting rid of the electoral college would do a lot of that because then you really would have a situation in which people would not say, well, my vote doesn't matter because I'm not in a swing state. So I think there are a lot of other things that can be done that should be done. Um, but I think that, the you know, a fundamental democratic with a small d premise has got to be that we want everybody to participate. And, uh, you know, what are all the intended and unintended consequences of doing that? Uh, I'd love to find out. I'd love to find out because it's been so long uh, and and so contested ride for the last 200 years that uh, let's get all the way there and, and see what we can make happen. Again, I, I think we're we are entering a period in which we're going to get a chance to rethink some of the fundamental structures of American democracy because it's pretty clear that what we have now is just not working. And when I talk to people from Australia or Belgium or some other countries where they have universal voting, people say, "Yeah, it's great. It's just like a civic duty, and we do it, and and it, you know, it's like a thing that we do." Now, I mean, the, the Belgian story is is interesting, as, as a, you know, which is that it, it was also to prevent voter suppression that the the employers didn't like the workers voting for the socialist parties. So the socialists in government in the 1890s said, well, we're just going to require make it mandatory for everybody to vote. And then six years later, Belgium also became the first country to pass proportional representation, uh, which probably saved the country from splitting apart into a Flemish-speaking and a French-speaking region. Um, Now, the final, as we wrap up here, the final thing I want to ask you about is like how you think this could actually get passed. And this is something that people always ask me when I talk about proportional representation uh, and or, you know, even fusion balloting, which I've been, uh, you know, very enthusiastic about as as well. How do you get something passed like this in which it's clear that there's a lot of people in power who do quite well under the current system? And if everybody voted, uh, they might not be so sure about how they can keep their power. I want Miles to answer this because he set up a campaign to do this, but it allows me to say that Miles is such an inveterate organizer I, I that when he dies, he will go to heaven and he will organize the angels into a union. Uh, and I'd love to see the theological issues raised when Miles Rappaport collectively bargains with God. But Miles, take it away on what you have in mind and what we've talked about in the book about how to do this. Well, it's, uh, to, to state the obvious, we recognize that this is an uphill fight. We're proposing an idea that, you know, while it has lots and lots of currency and, and value in many other places around the world, has had beer almost zero discussion about this, at least in the last hundred years in the United States. But at the same time, uh, we think the book has made a dent in at least getting the discussion, 
Our first goal is to get the discussion underway and make this one of the ideas that people talk about when they're talking about how we might change democracy for the better. Uh, then we are actually going to try to do an organizing campaign because books are great, but they don't in and of themselves, they don't move the needle. So we're going to have a, what's called the 100% democracy initiative. And the idea will be kind of threefold. One, to kind of move the intellectual and public policy debate, start to get the, the idea discussed in college classes, et cetera. Secondly, to uh, you know, get the democracy movement, because I do think that there is a robust and growing democracy move, pro-democracy movement in the country, to take this on as one of the issues, in addition to proportional representation, in addition to the electoral college, in addition to same-day registration, et cetera. And then lastly, I would look towards the states and municipalities uh, fulfilling their roles as laboratories of democracy. And we think there will be some municipalities, uh, you know, various state to state, what the mechanism is, and some state legislatures where we can get this introduced in 2023 or 2025 and get it seriously discussed and debated. And I think if we can find a few places that are willing to kind of go out on the, on the, on the limb on this and show that it works, Maybe it has some trajectory after that. And could I just say that uh, we? This is the only book I've ever been involved in that actually led to a bill, when uh, a direct bill as a result of the book. Uh, Miles and I were on Morning Joe, and Congressman John Larson of uh, Hartford heard us, and he actually uh, co-sponsored a bill with Representative Joe Courtney, also of Connecticut, um, the Civic Duty to Vote Act, which is in Congress now. Do we expect that to pass tomorrow morning? No. Uh, but we were heartened that somebody took an interest. And my favorite pages in the book are a bill. We we wanted to show this can be done. And we have a model bill that was introduced by State Senator Will Haskell in Connecticut. And I have a total bias in this case because uh, Will Haskell is my former student. And I was very excited when Will got interested in this idea and has really championed it in Connecticut. Makes teaching so worthwhile. <laughs> it does. It's a great thing. It's just, it's a real blessing. Even when your students oppose your ideas, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miles, EJ, this has really been a terrific conversation. I'm so delighted that you both took time out to talk about this idea. And I think this is really a decade for visionary thinking. Uh, and I'm so glad that you both have given us this really bold and exciting North Star to follow. So I look forward to continuing these conversations as we go bravely into what, what I hope will be a really exciting age of reform. So thank you. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 